Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Darts and Letters. I'm Jay. I'm one of the producers here. And our theme this week is left opinion makers. And this episode is packed with left-wing opinion makers talking shit about right-wing opinion makers. As well as being on New Books Network, our show is part of the Harbinger Media Network, which is this sort of DIY collection of left-wing Canadian podcasts. So we decided to have a bit of fun with this episode. We invited a bunch of our friends from the network onto the show and just asked them to dunk on the intellectuals they love to hate. I'll let Gordon introduce them all properly, but if you're looking for entry points into Canada's lefty intellectual podcasts, there are some great ones in here. And this is also just a really funny one of our episodes. Like, it's slightly different to what we do normally. It's a bit more of a relaxed vibe. I think you're going to love it. This is from November of last year, so some of the politics mentioned are a little out of date. Like, you will hear some stuff about Jason Kenney, who has since announced his resignation. It does still stand entirely as an episode, though. It's a great listen. Here's the show. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a podcast about arts and letters, but for people who might hack a dart. We're a left-wing show about ideas, about academia, and about thought leaders. There's this stupid thing that Canadians do. It's like a conversational tick. We like to point out when a famous person is Canadian. We do it with each other, but we especially do it with Americans. The radio show This American Life first identified this almost 25 years ago. When a Canadian name comes up in conversation with an American, you just can't wait to get the words in. You know, they're Canadian. David Rakoff explained this to Ira Glass. You would actually say at some point, you know, he's Canadian? I wouldn't even, not even at some point, Ira. Let's try it. Go on. You start. All right. So anyway, I was in the car on my way to work. Mm-hmm. And this, this song from Bachman Turner Overdrive They're came Canadian. on. <laughs> That's how I do it. I don't even wait. I don't even wait. Bachman <laughs> Turner Overdrive, they're Canadian. <laughs> and then I'll tell you, taking care of business, they wrote that. They're Canadian. I can tell you from personal experience, this is absolutely true. In fact, when I was young and I didn't know very much about music, when the name Tom Petty came up, I'd say, do you know that he's Canadian? It was years before some astute person finally pointed out to me that Tom Petty is from Florida. I completely confused Tom Petty with Tom Cochran. You know, he's Canadian. To the Petty family, I am very sorry for these years of blatant misinformation. Here's a few names I can get right. Marshall McLuhan, Irving Goffman, Jane Jacobs, John Kenneth Galbraith, G.A. Cohen, Ian Hacking. These are all Canadians, and they are all groundbreaking intellectuals. And as a Torontonian, let me take this bragging even a step further. Toronto thinks of itself as an intellectual city, And we have our own particularly Torontonian pathology of claiming people as Canadian. Here, we even brag about people who aren't Canadian but happen to live in Toronto, like Emma Goldman, 
Ernest Hemingway, and even Colonel Sanders. Hemingway lived in an apartment not too far from here, but just for about six months. He was there when he was writing for the Toronto Star. And now there's a goddamn historical plaque on the apartment. It's super generic, but it sold for a pretty penny. However, there's a problem here. I said this briefly in a past episode that we did about the Proud Boys. Our intellectual culture is degenerating. Our top scholars now are not named Goffman, McLuhan, or Hacking. They're named Peterson, Pinker, and Ignatieff. And in the Toronto Star, let's just say that Heather Malick and Rosie DeMano are not Ernest Hemingway. Our academics, our columnists, and our public intellectuals, they're a little dumb. But still, Today on Darts and Letters, I am going to keep up this petty Canadian nationalism, this stupid conversational tick. Did you know they're Canadian? Even if this is not exactly Canadian pride, even if it's more shame or debasement. I've gathered my friends from the Harbinger Media Network so they can help me continue this self-abasement. And I asked them one question. Who is Canada's dumbest public intellectual? Canada punches above its weight when it comes to ghoulish newspaper columnists. Think Conrad Black. But honestly, the average newspaper columnist in this country is no ghoul. They're a dullard. And so Kate Jacobson from Alberta Advantage has her unconventional pick. Her pick for dumbest public intellectual is Max Fawcett of the National Observer. He gets to pass himself off as kind of the left fringe of this passively mainstream political opinion. People like this are so accustomed to opposition coming from their right that they're actually usually quite shocked to find out that people on their left, A, exist, and B, might have developed analysis. Next, we talk to Eric, Marino, and Jeremy from Big Shiny Takes. They present me with an intellectual axis of evil. J.J. McCullough, The Washington Post's Canada Whisperer, David Frum, conservative thought leader turned liberal icon, and political science professor Tom Flanagan. Flanagan was part of the intellectual engine of Stephen Harper and the Conservative Party, till he fell from grace for being a little soft on, well, child porn, plus some other strange statements that Jeremy reads for us. It's a long story, but I got put on the mailing list of the North American Man-Boy Love Association, <laughs> and I started getting their mailings for a couple of years, and that's about as close as I got to child pornography. Wait, who put them on that that's list? That's pretty close, dude. Then the man behind the Harbinger Media Network, Andre Goulet. Andre and I talk about the state of left media in Canada and what Harbinger is trying to do about it. We don't have enough voices of the left in the mainstream, like it's kind of non-existent. And having this organization of people who are smart, funny, subversive, I think is really important for starting to shift some of the narrative back towards left thinking. But first, the fail son philosopher. I got 3,000 people in each audience and what they're trying to do is figure out how can I take maximal responsibility for my own life? How can I imbue it with the meaning that helps me withstand tragedy and suffering? How can I be a better person? And wouldn't it be great if that was of optimal benefit to my family and the community? You're getting very emotional about this. Well, it's something, Joe. Jesus, I've no. seen like 150,000 people in the last two months. He's the king. I mean, everybody else is just pretenders to the throne. Hillary Agro hosted the Marxist drug podcast Bread and Poppies. 
She's also a PhD student, a shit poster, and a hilarious TikToker. In all that, she's always dispelling toxic myths about drugs. And her pick for Canada's dumbest public intellectual is Jordan Peterson. I was surprised that nobody else had picked him, but it just, oh man, he's so bad. He's so bad. <laughs> poor, poor teary Kermit. <laughs> Sad Kermit. Now that you're a Torontonian, mm-hmm. do you worry that you might see him at your local coffee shop or something? Oh my what God. would you do? Does he actually still live in Toronto? Because, yeah, I don't know what I would do. I feel like I would want to like confront him or be aggressive because of his like horrible, you know, transphobia and like various regressive stances. But I feel like he would just start crying. And, you know, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, he would just like curl up into a fetal position and you can't pick on that. So... <laughs> So you podcast and write and tweet and TikTok a lot about drugs and drug policy. So maybe that's a kind of way in. I mean, what has the sort of Jordan Peterson stance on drugs been maybe before, you know, the whole um, him being on addicted to benzos and then being in Serbia and strange recovery yeah. programs? I mean, what has his stance been generally on drugs? Whatever it is, it's going to be hypocritical because he generally believes in like the status quo and not changing anything. And like that's drug prohibition and, you know, an anti-drug stance. And um, you would think that after being hospitalized for benzodiazepine addiction, he might look at this stuff differently. But I don't want to say that somebody who is so severely depressed and addicted to a substance shouldn't be telling other people how to live their lives and what to do, but he shouldn't be telling other people how to live their lives and what to do. And that's, you know, the hypocrisy really, that's what it comes down to for me is that Mm -hmm. like he himself has claimed in his work that you shouldn't be like trying to fix society until you get your own house in order. Like that's his whole thing is like, no, 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 don't worry about society. You want to, you know, work on yourself. And he's a fucking disaster. So what is he doing telling anybody else what to do? Like, (laughs) yeah, that's like his whole shtick, the whole like very individuated kind of, um, philosophy of his, like the whole self-help, it's just all clean your room before you can do anything else. And that obviously just like doesn't work for anything, but like for drug policy, especially where so much of it is structured at a policy level, at an enforcement level, at a a prohibition kind of level. I mean, um, what could be more social than drug policy? Yeah. I mean, it's frustrating because the way that he presents, you know, his ideas as, you know, like he uses a lot of like allegory and metaphor and like these like myths and ideas and acting like he's giving new insights. But all he's doing is just repeating the same neoliberal talking points that we've heard for years. Like it's your responsibility. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like anything that happens to you is your fault and you alone can fix it. But it's like, yeah, okay, some people have a messy room because they are physically disabled and aren't getting any support from the state or they, you know, work three jobs and have no time to fucking clean their room. So like, what are they supposed to do to them? This stuff is just so... Like the core of his arguments are so easily refutable, but he just says them in this like really complex meandering way that the people who listen to him just kind of 
oh, just watch 12 hours of his videos and you'll get it. <laughs> it's like, no, I've watched like five minutes and I, I understand perfectly. He's Nothing he's doing is new. It's all been done before. It's just the same iteration of this capitalist bullshit. You totally hit it on uh, nail on the head in terms of like his method, like the strange allegorical types of arguments. Yeah, actually, the most recent one I did watch by him was this long meandering, you know, anecdote about how zebras... Their stripes aren't to hide, they're not to camouflage themselves with the environment, they're to camouflage amongst each other so that the lions don't, you know, pick them out. And he, it's, he goes in this whole thing and it's like, oh, okay, interesting, like biology, you know, whatever. And then the lesson at the end is, so nobody should stand out or the lions will eat you, mm. like for humans. And it's just like, okay, so you want us to just get along don't stand out from the crowd. Just don't ask questions. Just do your thing. We're not fucking zebras. <laughs> like this is, as soon as you just think about it for one second and release yourself from the spell of his like meandering story, it's like, no, this doesn't make any sense. We are completely different animals. Like we're a social species. Like this is, but, but people, people fall for it because I guess he's soothing and a lot of people have daddy issues. No, no kidding. It's like the most elementary kind of like logical fallacy, even though he is painted as this like paragon of reason and enlightenment virtues, but just to commit just a basic naturalistic fallacy to say a lobster is this way and therefore humans ought to be that way too. I mean, I think it was like Nathan from Current Affairs was saying, that's just like saying a praying mantis like eats its young or whatever, or, you know, so, so then we have to do that. Like it doesn't even track in any way that you should take those sort of simple uh, lessons from nature. And like, I get the use of metaphor and allegory is is great. It's fine. Like human beings are storytellers and that's often how we relay information. So I'm not against like the, the tactic, but if you're going to do it, like have better politics. <laughs> exactly. I mean, most of his writing, I would say, especially like the rules or whatever are like kind of anodyne. They're kind of like boring conservatism. But then when you kind of like read between the lines and ask yourself, like, what is the political upshot? of like saying that the world is nothing but chaos versus order and that hierarchies are natural and that we are structured by the threat of violence and things like that. It's like, that's actually like a very dark worldview. And what actually comes out of it is not just cleaning your room. It's something bigger, even though he would never say that that's what he, like like there's a there's there's one I think you know it's worth reading because I think it's maybe the most insane quote that I pulled in preparation. Have you have you heard the one where he was talking about the threat of violence between two men and how that structures relationships? I've not seen that one. I, I will read it. It's it's worth considering because it's just like okay here it is. He says I know how to stand up to a man who's unfairly trespassing against me. And the reason why I know this is because the parameters for my resistance are quite well-defined, which is we talk, we argue, we push, it becomes physical. That's what the next step is. I know that's the next step. Like he's ever been in a fight in his entire life. Yeah, (laughs) I know. And then he says, I won't read the whole thing, but he says that's forbidden in discourse with women. And so I don't think that men can control crazy women. He goes on to say... The threat of violence keeps people civilized to a certain extent, but you can't do it with women. For example, there's a woman in Toronto who's been organizing this movement against me, calling me a Nazi, yada, yada, I'm paraphrasing now. And then he says, but I'm defenseless against this kind of female insanity because the techniques that I would use against a man who has 
been employing those tactics are forbidden to me. And he would never say explicitly that he's that he's like advocating for violence against women, but clearly in this, he's like saying, Oh, if only I could, right? The layers. Yeah. The layers there. Yeah. And and this is a good example of exactly what he does. Like a long-winded thing where you're like, where exactly is he going with this? And he kind of like tricks you into thinking that his point is much more philosophical and abstract than it actually is. And it's sad because the most frustrating thing about him is that he, I mean, to his credit, has figured out this niche where there's many, many young white men who feel disaffected from society. They don't really know what the fuck to do with their lives. They're working, like capitalism is crushing them into dust. And they, they're looking for explanations. And the right is right there, ready to give them explanations. And the far right is waiting for people like Jordan Peterson to get them sort of like buttered up and get them to start to think about things like hierarchy and gender as like this immutable characteristic and these ways of thinking and these ideologies that thanks to the YouTube algorithm and things like that, funnel them to like further and further right. But Jordan Peterson is like the gateway drug and Mm. he is packaging this right-wing ideology in just kind of like self-help. You know, he's this is how to improve your life. And a lot of people want that. They feel really lost. They feel depressed. They want guidance. And it's interesting because I've actually been thinking about it for some of my social media work. There's a lot of straight white men who follow me because I don't tend to talk about gender and racism and stuff like that in terms of like individuals. Like I talk about it really on a structural level. So I'm not saying like, oh, like fucking men are pieces of shit, right? Because that alienates people. And I've been thinking more and more that like, There are so many people who are desperate for answers for what's going on in the world right now. And on the left, we need to be able to provide those. We need to be able to provide them in a welcoming way. And you know what? If somebody needs to learn how to clean their room, I will tell them, (laughs) just go clean your room and then join a union. Like, I'm here for you if you need me to, like, guide you towards some meaning in your life, because that's what people are missing. Uh, And we we need to be doing that more on the left, because people like Jordan Peterson are just going to be picking up the slack if we're not. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. I think on some level, the success of Jordan Peterson speaks to a, a certain kind of weakness in the left or or certainly the sort of academic left that there aren't more publicly engaged folks that are providing those answers, providing that guidance, you know, providing leftist self-help, whatever that might look like. Yeah, I mean, even just leftist self-love, like I... I, I you know, because really the, the end goal is to reframe even things that we see as like mental health and these issues as away from individualism and away from like, you need to do these things to, to fix yourself, to say, no, we are going to do these things together. And on the way, we can have some fun and build connection and build community. And there are more and more people doing that kind of thing. But um, it's a niche that needs to continue to be filled. And we can do that as we create connections like we're doing now and like creating stuff for people to engage with. We can definitely do that because, yeah, the, the right has figured that one out. That was Hillary Agro. She hosted the Marxist drug podcast Bread and Poppies. To find out more of her recent work, follow her on Twitter. That's at Hillary A-G-R-O. Next up, Kate Jacobson of the excellent podcast Alberta Advantage. Darts listeners may recognize Kate from our fourth episode, The Conquest of Bread. Kate had an unconventional pick, Max Fawcett. Fawcett is a Calgary-based columnist for the National Observer. I definitely took the question of dumbest public intellectual and went with 
to me, one of the most annoying and irritating public intellectuals, which is probably not quite the same thing. You know, I actually have no doubt that Max Fawcett is quite smart, but Max Fawcett is a pundit based in Alberta. And the reason that I chose him is that I think he's actually really emblematic of a lot of very irritating trends in Canadian media. And the thing about Canadian media is that the media ecosystem in this country is so torqued to both do the ideological work of creating buy-in for really right-wing projects, but also very tor- towards appealing towards like boomers who buy print papers, I guess, and get angry at news stories on Facebook. And because of these two things, very like milk toast, centrist, establishment liberal, oftentimes even capital L liberal politics gets treated as very radical or very contrarian. And I think Max Fawcett is a great example of this because he gets to pass himself off as kind of the left fringe of this passably mainstream political opinion. And this is really irritating because (laughs) people like this are so accustomed to opposition coming from their right that they're actually usually quite shocked to find out that people on their left, A, exist, and B, might have developed analysis, different ideas, different points of view. And this also leads to something I truly just find very annoying, which is when people rejoice in being both critiqued from the right and the left, because they take it as an indication that like, my politics represent the perfect center, and my political position is so sensible and so common sense that only lunatics on the left and the right could possibly oppose my genius ideas. (laughs) And I just don't think having the politics of the Liberal Party of Canada is that brave or interesting. Yeah, I was looking at his writing, and I mean, it's like the easy targets, a lot of it, like mm-hmm. Kenny and Harper and Ford, and like, it just seems like you can make yourself a career in Canadian media as like a dullard, essentially, if you just kind of mostly attack the conservative right. I mean, in in the most kind of anodyne ways. I like when you picked it. I was a little bit surprised because I was like, I was bored. I guess. <laughs> Do you get yeah, that? Yeah, that- I'm like, you know, Max Fawcett is no like Leisha Corbella or Margaret Wenty or Conrad Black. You know, like there are some truly awful people writing in Canadian media, and like by no means is Max Fawcett as like politically reprehensible as those people. But you're right, it's boring. <laughs> A friend of mine described him as a passionate centrist or someone who would refer to themselves. Is that a fair characterization of like what his politics are? How does he kind of self-present? I think that is a really fair characterization. Like it's someone who is really passionate about being in the middle and has almost kind of internalized like these Ezra Klein-esque policy wonk tendencies. And I think one of the other things this represents that really frustrates me as someone who lives in Alberta is that and maybe I'm misreading the rest of Canadian media, but if Max Fawcett was writing these takes and was like living in Ontario or living in Toronto, it would be like, oh, this is a dime a dozen. Mm. But because he's from Alberta and is writing about Alberta, you get almost this kind of like credibility of being like, oh, you live in Alberta. And like, sometimes you do mild critiques of the fossil fuel industry or like electric vehicle boosterism. So you get to have the aesthetics of being like radical or against the grain without actually having to stake out any like radical politics or controversial politics. And that's because, you know, Alberta, generally speaking, is like a pretty emaciated, depoliticized, like media environment, civic culture. But you know, if you read books or you study the politics of other places, it's pretty easy to realize that like this is not 
unique or bold. And I think like some of like Max Fawcett's recent takes that really are emblematic of this to me are things like, you know, you shouldn't politicize Remembrance Day. Like anyone who politicizes Remembrance Day is bad. Or Rachel Notley was actually a great leader for the fossil fuel industry. And that's what makes her so brave. And these are just like mainstream liberal takes. And this kind of, I feel almost like I'm doing a sort of like gatekeeping, like in order to be a cool kid, like radical contrarian, you have to have like X, Y, and Z opinions. And I'm actually pretty certain there is like common ground between me and Max Fawcett, like on these opinions. But what's very frustrating is that A, as I've said, this gets presented as like the most left-wing thing one could possibly imagine. And B, figures like this, when confronted with substantive political critique from the left, tend to do what I would call like nuance mongering. So retreating into really tiny details rather than like making bold arguments or assessments of the world we live in, or even really like staking out their own politics as a centrist. And, you know, to be fair, Max Fawcett is representative of this. He did not invent it. This definitely goes further than like Max Fawcett, the CBC, mainstream media. It's absolutely a problem, you know, within the NDP. And there's this big unwillingness to engage in original political analysis. And that's really bad for political debate, political change, any type of organizing, because it makes even social democracy like outside the very narrow spectrum that the media or the media establishment has decided is the terrain we're arguing on. I've seen a few articles about anti-vaxxers, which is again, sort of like low hanging fruit, like kind of easy Mm -hmm. targets for him to punch. But it also, when you read through it, it is very... Like these people are anti-science and they're like this uneducated horde that needs to sort of be disciplined. Let's stop doing the carrot and start doing the stick. And I'm certainly not here to sort of defend anti-vaxxers, especially the most mm-hmm. the most sort of reactionary elements of it. But my political ethos around that especially, but any kind of question of expert authority is like, let's actually turn the critique inwards and like, How has Canada's COVID policy failed? What kind of broader medical racism and and social inequalities structure these kind of conspiratorial dynamics? And how can public health do better instead of what's the new way to kind of scold? And, And there was a lot of these kind of scolding articles. Yeah, the scolding tendency is just, to me, that is such a pundit's response to anything that is... Uh, going on. And although I guess I do like fulfill in many ways, like a pundit's role on the Alberta Advantage, I was trained as an organizer. I do work as an organizer. And obviously I don't go into any situation and think I'm going to scold people around to sort of my viewpoint. And I do think polemics do have their place in like a broad political sphere, but I do not think scolding is a way to solve any problems in society and definitely not a way to move people to action. There's one more take before I ask you about if you have any uh, honorable mentions, but is Jason Kenney a socialist? Oh my gosh, I forgot about this one. No, Jason Kenney is not a socialist. Socialism is not when the government does things. Um, as a socialist. But yeah, so that again, I think is a great example of what I was describing earlier, which is willfully misrepresenting things to your left. 
and in this case, willfully misrepresenting socialism as socialism is A, whenever the government does anything. So if Jason Kenney gets the government to do things, that's socialism. Or B, like socialism is when the government makes rules mm -hmm. about like how people can behave, which is a very like Cold War style smear of socialism. Like socialism is when the government tells you what to do when you live in 1970s USSR. Yeah, the two things I was trying to figure out Okay, from this, what is his view of socialism? And there's really two claims that Kenny was basically like subsidizing oil and gas industries and then asking for certain things like directing the industry in a, in a kind of way. And then there was another one where he was behaving like a left-wing regime he loves to criticize because he had a new advisory panel for a K to six curriculum with a confidentiality agreement on the advisory panel. I don't this I don't know anything about what he's talking about, but like basically implying that like um, socialist governments are anti-free speech and are want secretive, to, make backroom deals. Exactly. Absolutely. Spending money on the oil and gas industry is socialism. <laughs> And you think you make a great point is there's a lot of implied loaded assumptions there. One of the most obvious kind of like Cold War era smears of socialism is basically that left-wing governments are secretive. They don't let people say what they believe, that kind of thing. But the oil and gas one is so interesting because that's what neoliberalism is. Neoliberalism, which is the way that you know, first world capitalist democracies have sort of reoriented the state and their economy since about the 1970s is basically reorienting the resources of the state away from the welfare state, which was this like brief kind of detente in capital towards kind of siphoning public money to private companies. And, you know, at the risk of myself being a scold is kind of a thing you could figure out through like reading a book, examining the politics of other places that are not Alberta, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, which I do recommend other people to do. Do you have any honorable mentions in the Alberta media ecosystem that are worth uh, worth talking about? Oh, man. So if you open the newspaper, the Calgary Herald, I would say just all of them <laughs> are pretty bad. So you've got like Don Braid, who's just like pure distilled boomer thought <laughs> in the pages of the Calgary Herald. You've got like Alicia Corbella, who will literally write articles that are like very obviously trying to get her friends jobs. <laughs> and she's like, why is this in the newspaper? Um, David Staples in Edmonton is famously bad at writing about both education and hockey. I don't know a lot about hockey. My <laughs> friends who do have assured me he also is completely nonsensical when it comes to hockey. Rick Bell from the Calgary Sun may be a really obvious uh, choice, but just kind of reflecting like the lowest common denominator of conservative thought and absolutely just pure boosterism for whatever the conservative mm. movement uh, is doing in this province. So definitely a lot of people, none of them to me, and the reason why I didn't choose them, none of them to me so interesting as kind of the role Max Foss or people like him play in like Canada's media ecosystem. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, what is the ideological project there of someone who's like a passionate centrist that sets himself up in opposition to the ghouls on the right? I mean, is it purely like left scolding and like disciplining the more progressive elements, like providing a kind of safe outlet for people that live in Alberta that might be left wing or, or, or flirting with it? Is it that simple? Or is it like 
Is it a grift? Is it just, a, I mean, maybe it's both of those things. <laughs> so this reminds me a lot of like staffers in the NDP. If you've ever been to like an NDP convention where like on a macro level, absolutely their role is like disciplining the left flank. And I very much think like in Alberta, like part of the role Max Fawcett plays is disciplining the left flank of like anti-Kenny movements are being like, you know what, the most important thing is that we all rally behind Rachel Notley's NDP in 2023. And also it can't be too radical. Otherwise people won't vote for Rachel Notley's NDP in 2023. And that's why we need to do insert like extremely milquetoast centrist politics here. The same way that like this happens all the time at like NDP conventions, policy resolutions, things like that. But then and maybe this is unfair on a micro level. Absolutely. There's like a careerist part to this, which is just like, you know, both NDP staffers and Max Fawcett, I'm sure, like enjoy well-paying, stable, middle-class lives. I personally don't really have a lot of ground to stand on to critique it because I also enjoy a very stable middle-class life. And I also don't want to do things that jeopardize it because mm -hmm. it's nice to be able to pay rent and go to the grocery store and be able to buy whatever you want in there. But absolutely on a micro level, I think like the greater logic of capitalism disciplines these people because you can't be too radical or make too many enemies because you will lose the ability to have a job or you will lose the ability to exist in this media ecosystem that like provides you with your income. So I think both of the things you mentioned are going on, just one on a smaller level and mm -hmm. one on a larger level. Mm -hmm. So just to wrap up here, Kate, what do you have uh, in store for uh, the next few episodes of Alberta Advantage? Anything that you feel particularly excited about? What can we look forward to? Oh, so the Alberta Advantage has recently started Twitch streaming. This is not something I am super involved in. So I feel a bit like a boomer uh, <laughs> talking about it. It's like a place where people like play video games and talk yeah. and watch them uh, as they do it. And that's been a really uh, fun way to kind of, because the podcast is very highly produced, very highly researched. Oftentimes it's quite scripted. We do a lot of editing. So it is nice to have a platform that is a bit less formal to kind of connect with listeners, talk about politics that like maybe don't warrant a full episode. Very cool. I'll have to check out those streams. Well, Kate, thanks so much for talking to me again. It's been so much fun. Oh, it was absolutely a pleasure. I love coming on the show. I only only resent you a little bit for making me read Max Fawcett all morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's not the worst you've had to read. That was Kate Jacobson of the Alberta Advantage. If you want leftist content straight from the birthplace of the CCF, check out their excellent podcast. And next up, Big Shiny Takes presents us with the intellectual axis of evil. But first, this short message. You're listening to Darts and Letters. If you like what you hear and you want to support us, why don't you subscribe? You can do that wherever you find your podcasts, or you can find us at dartsandletters.ca. Okay, back to the show. Eric Wickham, Marino Greco, and Jeremy Appel are big, shiny takes. Big Shiny Tunes was a series of compilation albums put together by Much Music. The second one is actually one of the best ever selling Canadian albums, and it's got some real bangers. But Big Shiny Takes? No bangers. It's about bad takes in Canadian media. 
just you reading all this stuff, you're really like doing the Lord's work. Like I cannot stand Canadian uh, newspaper columnists. Always skip it. What, what what is that like to make that kind of like your every week? <laughs> <laughs> you know, often enough, the work gets done for us. Like people will just be dunking on mm. like a column or usually just the headline of the column. That's a pretty accurate description of uh, what's to come. And then we're like, all right, I guess we're talking about that one, right? I guess the mileage we get out of bad columns, because they are bad, varies. Uh, I don't want to put words into anyone's mouth, but if I could like assess it, I think Jeremy is probably the most able to enjoy them. Mm. <laughs> Eric's a bit more torn. I It's mostly psychic damage for me, <laughs> but I do recognize it as really important work and I get to meet very cool people on the side of criticizing it. So that keeps me going. <laughs> yeah. And I also get to, intro because I live in Calgary, I sort of get to introduce my co-host to uh, some uh, Calgary and Edmonton originals mm. like uh, Rick Bell, who's like, he's sort of like Calgary's Joe Warmington. <laughs> like he's just like a dumb guy <laughs> who, who will like write some heinous shit. But at the end of the day, he's like, like, I've met him. I saw him out in the wild last week when I was uh, at a council meeting. And, like, he's, like, a, you know, he's a simple man. Nice guy, but... Um, Does he wear, like, a, a lower-rent version of fedora of Joe Warmington? <laughs> no. No, he doesn't. He's, uh... Well, his hair is like mine when I grow it out a bit. Like, he's got a big bald spot. I haven't gotten close enough to him to confirm this, but I've heard he has really bad breath. <laughs> he's very chatty. As Joe Warmington, I interned at the Toronto Sun summer of 2015, so I met like Joe Warmington and Sue Ann Levy, and so Jeremy, is that when you introduced Joe to like quasi Drake, like alternative reality Drake with different <laughs> lyrics? Yeah, actually, I wrote those <laughs> yeah. lyrics. He's been saying on them for a while. He just thinks you're Drake, man. Oh, yeah. Well, we actually got our friend Alex who uh, co-hosts a podcast called House of Decline to uh, record Joe Warmington's fake Drake <laughs> lyrics over like a Drake beat. <laughs> okay, by the way, just for people who don't know, he, in The Sun, had a, an op-ed, a, a column about how Drake was encouraging gang culture, whatever that means, and he quoted a Drake song, which is not a Drake song. It's not even a song. Yeah, where, where it's just like out of his mind palace, he goes, we can't afford to let someone <laughs> else get killed. If they scared, we kill you by ourselves. If I'm scared, bodyguard Chubbs will shoot you by himself. Only need one person to shoot you, you only live once. Sounds like a banger. Can't afford to let someone else get killed. If they scared, we kill you by ourselves. If I'm scared, bodyguard Chubbs will shoot you by himself. Only need one person to shoot you, you only live once. I think he has like bodyguard in brackets too. So like, I don't know if it was supposed to be said by a different person <laughs> or he's just describing who Chubbs was. I mean, the best part of that is it was completely fabricated. And people were like, like, I think Press Progress asked him, where did you find this? And he's like, oh, I don't know. It was just in my notebook. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's just like scribbling rhymes. And then he somehow found it and was like, this is, this is Drake condoning uh, gang violence. So how would you describe like the intellectual heft of the average Canadian columnist? Oh my God. 
<laughs> I think the word lacking does a lot. <laughs> a lot of good work there. The fact that there aren't a lot of spaces left puts this under a little bit more light than it used to be. There's so many bad columnists in this country. Yeah, I think you can split it roughly into like idiots <laughs> who don't try and conceal the fact that they're idiots like Joe Warmington and Rick Bell and then idiots who use the sources like Rex Murphy, mm-hmm. Conrad Black, Terry Glavin, John Ibbotson, all the Johns, <laughs> Ibbotson, Iveson, K. It's really the divide between like the Sun columnists and the the Post and Globe and Mail columnists, right? Who pretend to be smart, but if you actually put what they're saying into words most people can understand, it's like, oh wow, this is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> like this is shit you can go into any like Tim Hortons in Calgary and hear Joe Alberta like whining about how like Trudeau is unfair to us. Because he only bought one pipeline. <laughs> like, I would say the one the one guy who, like, I guess sort of like a guilty pleasure of mine who's, like, actually a good writer and, like, he's a huge troll, I think. And so it's hard to say whether he, like, actually believes the shit he writes or not is Andrew Coyne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he also wants to abolish time zones, though, right? <laughs> yeah, that is a hot take, too. Like, just, he smoked a huge bowl of DMT <laughs> and was just like. As you do, right? Yeah, what what even is time? So I, I, I'm curious here about who Canada's dumbest public intellectual is. And you've all brought amazing folks and very different folks to the table. So I wanted to kind of run through this axis of evil, you might say, of three dumb public intellectuals. Who, who wants to begin? We have JJ McCullough, David Frum, and um, the man with the fur coat. <laughs> we'll we'll, uh, we'll get to Tom Flanagan, but maybe we should start with JJ because I, I JJ is the one that was new to me. Well, I mean, you talked about sort of like run of the mill, milk toast columnists, and I think JJ falls into that category. He's his main gig is he's a columnist for the Washington Post, but he's had a lot of. Uh, pieces in the National Post. He's probably best known for his YouTube channel where he has these like milk toast opinions and a lot of them are nothing to do with politics or opinion whatsoever. And like nothing he says is going to be as bad as what the other two columnists, public intellectuals that Jeremy and Eric have picked. However, his game is that he appeals with these political videos. I actually fell into the JJ McCullough trap myself on my YouTube videos. I watch a lot of nerdy content. The video title was Steamed Hams, But Everything is Fully Explained. That's it. And he just sort of like talks about The Simpsons in a very sort of like sanitized, straight to the facts way. No context about the leftist politics in The Simpsons, the very pro-union politics. And just sort of like other videos about fruit snacks or iconic monsters. Then when you're in this ecosystem, when you're in, when he's in your algorithm, suddenly you're watching videos about old Americans that uncritically presents Henry Kissinger as just another old American. Like I wouldn't (laughs) bring up Henry Kissinger in any context. Like, like you have to provide the context of how he like absolutely decimated any opponent of America in the sixties and seventies and whenever he was in power or like a video about, uh, ranking prime ministers on a graded scale because, you know, they're all better than F for sure. There's definitely lots of nuance there. Uh, and then seeing like John A. McDonald, the architect of residential schools, be in the in the S class. That kind of like very subtle 
acceptance of the status quo, very uncritical approach to reality and just sort of like catching everyone. And then to sort of like bring this to the final point of like this guy sort of doing the whole both sides things that I think does a lot of people who are not served by capitalism and imperialism doesn't do them a lot of help. And he's so cutesy about it too. I mean, his videos, he says like a boot and a ruined. So let's talk about that. Whenever you hear someone use the adjective North American to refer to something about the culture of this continent, for example, oh my God. Is, that was actually the first thing I noticed <laughs> when I watched a video of his. I'm like, this is the first Canadian person I've heard actually say a boot. Yeah. And I don't know if he actually uses a boot like as a matter of speech or he's just because I think JJ is like fundamentally a troll. Mm. I don't think he has any core beliefs beyond like as marino said like very milk toast like conservative opinions it seems like he's branding himself as like the guy that americans should turn to to understand the weirdness of canada a lot of the videos are like here's what's different about the u.s and canada here's myths that we have <laughs> it's like he even created a um, a canada guide have you seen this He has a website that's just like, let me explain Canada to you. And it has, it's basically like a glorified Wikipedia article, although he makes uh, pains to say he didn't use Wikipedia in in doing any of his research, which I thought (laughs) was kind of weird. Do not believe that. (laughs) And uh, beyond his like a boot, which I found insufferable and I think is contrived. There is like, yeah, there is like, I call it a smugness about his opinions, even though he's just sort of stating the facts. It's like, oh, you're dumb if you're one of these people who are critical about all this. Life's complicated. Mm-hmm. Like, that's sort of like the vibe that I get. And also like the appeal to nostalgia, the appeal to nerdiness. He has this like background that if you just like looked at his video without context, you would just think, well, wow, this is like some dude who like went to a focus group to develop his like YouTube backdrop. Mm-hmm. And it's like Super Mario Brothers 3, anything popular and nerdy. He is the guy who writes for an American newspaper about Canada, but he seems to not really get Canada that well. <laughs> like uh, the piece that we we covered uh, with, with Clinton on the show was something about uh, the election results in the United States and how Trump wasn't accepting the results. And his big think piece was like, well, what if this happened in Canada? And it was just like, but it didn't happen in Canada. And why do you think this is super important? And then like he went on to like poorly explain like the Westminster system and, you know, our, our structure and process of government. And it's like, this is not useful at all. The reason why he's my pick for worst public intellectual is just the numbers. Mm. Like, National Post circulation is something like 150,000 from Monday to Thursday and then another 130,000 on Saturday. This dude has 500,000 YouTube followers. If one-fifth of his viewers see his videos, he's doing the same exact numbers as National Post circulation. And they're, they're getting millions of views, views from outside, catching people in, catching an ostensibly younger audience. He's perpetuating this crappy media environment, this lack of criticism of power, mm-hmm. holding power to account for a new generation and saying like, like, this is fine. You're a middle-class person watching YouTube. It's great. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because most of the time, especially you kind of look at the headlines, it's sort of anodyne, but the more and more I, I was reading some of his, his Washington Post columns, like there's some pretty like heinous stuff that's sometimes smuggled in there. Like his writing about mm-hmm. drug policy and in Vancouver, like this is like mind palace stuff, but he talks about how like you know, drug user activists are pushing for basically, he says the darkest 
possibility of that politics is that the downtown east side become a no-go zone completely ungoverned by violent anarchy and that is their vision of liberating drug users from from stigma it's like uh what chaz yeah <laughs> was it yeah <laughs> yeah oh it's bizarre more from eric maria and jeremy in a second next up eric's pick david from but first another message we need your support. If you like what we do, I want you to chip in on Patreon. Listeners get content a day early and sometimes exclusive bonus material. We really appreciate the people who back us. Thanks to some of our most recent patrons, Arundhati, Mark, and Justin. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Okay, on to the show and on to Eric's pick, David Frum. A uniquely evil person, I think, maybe has outsized influence as a Canadian thought leader. People know, I'm sure, he's the um, speechwriter who came up with the idea of the axis of evil and and major his, uh, figure in the history of Canadian conservatism. Why did you pick him as Canada's dumbest public intellectual? Well, I think there's a lot of good reasons to pick a guy like David from. I think you bring up one of the the key points that like really gets me specifically because nobody seems interested in holding him to account for writing a speech that resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths that did not need to occur. I should probably start off at the beginning. David Frum, typical Canadian story of a self-made man, right? The son of a real estate developer and a CBC radio broadcaster. Nobody knows how he gets the jobs he gets, but he seems to get them all the time. Um, Writes for The Atlantic, and he's also like a really unlikable, respectable conservative, right? Like his entire shtick is wear a suit and, you know, pretend to understand what's going on, but not be willing to actually put in the work to, you know, make a better world. So he's not like the in-your-face uh, socially conservative bigot, but he, uh, I feel like that does more damage in, mm. you know, the current climate. So, I mean, he sort of had like a redemption arc, the last four or five years because he had the gall to say, you know, Trump is bad. And that's, uh, that really, really <laughs> played well in Canadian media. And so this is a, this is a piece from a promo piece that ran in the national post for a monk debate, uh, between David Frum and Stephen Moore. And the debate was titled, is the GOP better off without Trump? And this was, you know, this past winter. So he's talking about the Jan. This was a monk debate? This was a monk debate. Yeah. So this is a good quote from that column used to promo the debate that I'm sure was fantastic. This is about January 6th. I don't think we've all registered yet how important an event in American history this will turn out to be. It is going to be taught in school textbooks 100 years from now. This is going to be one of the defining moments of the 21st century, and U.S. President Donald Trump's name and face will be attached to it as the greatest villain in the entire archive of American presidents. David Frum, former speechwriter for George W. Bush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just such a fucking idiot, and it's not just that he's an idiot. It's that he has blood on his hands. And what really does it for me is this never Trump grifter persona mm -hmm. he's created for himself after. Like, I don't know, I'm a reasonable conservative. I'm not like these uncouth MAGA guys. I just want to bomb the Middle East and restrict immigration. But I'm very polite about it. And yeah, I mean, whenever the CBC invites him on to talk about like 
American politics, like my blood oh, just God. boils. You're hitting it onto something here. I think the the reason why he is who he is, he's been able to sort of launder his own persona through places like the Atlantic is that he presents as an intellectual. People said that he brought intellectual health, heft rather, to the Bush administration and his books have been described as like, oh, the smartest books, you know, ever written about the conservative movement. But what is particularly intelligent about, you know, the axis of evil speech or whatever? I mean, it's just like classic American imperialism repackaged. It's just so frustrating that supposedly liberal intellectual publications like Atlantic would, um, would fall for it, but it's not surprising with, you know, who they are. I mean, the image of the respectable conservative, I think, more and more is uh, uh, becoming very obviously like something that doesn't exist. Oh, yeah. I mean, like if, if you look at even the word choice in the axis of evil speech, you know, that speech where he lumped Iran, Iraq and North Korea into a group that see, <laughs> somehow interacts with each other. He's like George W. Bush is criticizing Iraq in the speech and he's talking about how, you know, the regime has used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens and leaving the bodies of mothers huddled over their dead children. And they use that to justify a war that left upwards of half a million people dead. Like that that's so craven and it's so disgusting that like it shouldn't matter if he's, you know, clean cut and wearing a suit. Um, I think David Frum is like the worst. What do you think it says about Canada that like he has been successful and has been able to fail up into the upper echelons of American politics and American media? Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I think particularly with Canada, the media here allows you to have horrible positions, awful, like you could have awful politics as long as you don't swear on live television, <laughs> as long as you clean up well, it's fine. Richard Spencer got a lot of time, right? And it, it was mostly down to his haircut and the fact that he sounded soft-spoken when he was doing his media hits. So David Frum, like, oh my God, that's like their best case scenario for a conservative. Um, what about uh, the the only true sort of like academic on this little short list of people? Jeremy, he also cleans up when he goes on TV and will wear a bison outfit <laughs> for some reason. Professor Tom Flanagan. Yes, that's right. Now, it's interesting because David Fromm is, of course, a Canadian who struck it big in the U.S. Tom Flanagan's an American who moved to Canada in the 60s. He's from actually a place called Ottawa, Illinois. <laughs> and he moved to Calgary in the late 60s became a sort of founding member of the Calgary School at the University of Calgary, which, you know, I think can best be described as like the Canadian equivalent of the Chicago School in the States because we have no original ideas <laughs> whatsoever. We just replicate what's going on in the United States. And so, but, you, you know, like the Chicago School, it's just where all the most wretched right-wing ideologues in the country, uh, get together and like commit like a blood sacrifice. <laughs> and so he wrote a book. Well, he, I mean, he's written several books, but one quite infamous book was called first nations second thoughts where he wrote about how essentially that colonization was like inevitable and good in that indigenous people are just uncivilized mm -hmm. 
and they need to be assimilated. So like really old school racist stuff. He writes in the book, European civilization was several thousand years more advanced mm-hmm. than the aboriginal cultures of North America. Now, when he was writing this book, he didn't step foot on a First Nations reserve, probably because he was scared. You know, he sort of positioned himself as this, like, truth-telling iconoclast, taking down famous figures of Canadian history, all of whom happened to be indigenous. Mm. He sort of played a role for the past 35 years defending the Canadian government (sighs) in uh, Métis land claims. Just essentially uh, being their expert witness that, like, indigenous people, like, they have no right to their own land. They're uncivilized and they just need to become Canadians, right? And I was actually watching a video today, totally unrelated to my research for this, from uh, CBC Kids for their indigenous section about land back. And they quoted Tom Flanagan as this sort of like uh, credible voice against the land back movement, right? Because, you know, you always have to look for both sides, right? (laughs) And so, oh, here's someone who's saying a bunch of racist shit. Let's quote him. Yeah, he was also a – so he he got involved with the Reform Party in the 90s, was close to Stephen Harper, was a strategist for him. But what listeners may know Tom Flanagan from – is that he's also, um, I don't want to say pro-pedophile, but I actually do want to say pro-pedophile, though I, I guess his position's a bit more nuanced than that. It's just a photo, right? What's the damage? Yeah, he's like, I don't think we should be judging people based on their taste in photography. <laughs> oh, my God. So he was speaking at the University of Lethbridge. What the fuck? In February 2013, <laughs> and he said that, Exactly what we just said. I certainly have no sympathy for child molesters, but I do have some grave doubts about putting people in jail because of their taste in pictures, <laughs> which is definitely, that's definitely a way of putting it. <laughs> but he goes on, and this is like the chef kiss right here. It's a long story, but I got put on the mailing list of the North American Manboy Love Association, <laughs> and I started getting their mailings for a couple of years, and that's about as close as I got to child pornography. Wait, who put him on that that's list? That's pretty close, dude. It sounds like he put himself on that list. Yeah. Well, whoever put him on that list is a fucking legend. <laughs> to play a pedophile's advocate here for a second here, you could call it intellectual integrity because as a Hayekian libertarian, no rules, right? Child pornography is just fair game. That's right. The first rule of uh, Hayekian libertarianism is there are no (laughs) rules. Yeah. So, I mean, basically that sort of got him canceled. Stephen Harper uh, denounced him and there was an attempt to rehabilitate him uh, like a year later. Global did an interview with him for God knows what reason. And he said, I hope nobody ever probes everything I did as campaign manager and chief of staff. And so he said that while he was biting into a roasted tomato, (laughs) they noted. He said, uh, you do things that, you know, are kind of edgy. And in December 2010, he said uh, when he was on – One of these, I think it was with Evan Solomon. He was on a CBC panel. He said that Julian Assange should be assassinated. He said, I think Obama should put out a contract and maybe use a drone or something. I'm feeling pretty manly today. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. 
Oh God, because we we know that the manliest thing is to beg your political benefactors to obliterate someone with a remote bomb from a drone. That's so manly. <laughs> Alpha male material right here. But yeah, so basically, I mean, he's really like any idiot can get a PhD. <laughs> you know, there are lots of smart academics out there. Don't get me wrong. But if you're willing to put in the work, you'll get your graduate degree, right? And you don't have to be intelligent. You sure as shit don't need any, uh, you know, social skills. And then if you're right wing, you'll be invited on all the fucking round table circle jerks to express your like insane worldview. So, you know, people can get a sense of what the other side is thinking. The other thing that's good about having a PhD is that you, especially if you're a successful academic, your bizarre behaviors and eccentricities are just like quirky rather than like uh, yeah. dangerous and <laughs> and disturbing and, and needing of like institutional surveillance. Uh, but like when, you know, I was referring to it earlier, he did a, a, a CBC interview where he was wearing a bison coat. It's not like just a fur coat, like a giant coat like this big. And I was reading some of the follow-up articles and they interviewed him and asked him about the coat. And it really just made me want to be a student of political science at the University of Calgary because he says to a, a CBC reporter, I think, all my students have seen it. I wear it on campus all the time. It's well known. On cold, snowy days, I have an outfit I call the full buffalo. A buffalo coat, sealskin boots, horsehide mitts, and a beaver hat. It makes me an icon of Canadian history. In fact, it's kind of a chick magnet. Women are drawn to the coat. They want to come up and feel the coat. <laughs> yeah, that definitely happens. Yeah. Just like you somehow added to Nambler's uh, mailing list, right? <laughs> Uh, and, and he is like the intellectual engine of like reform, the populist right, and the whole Harper era, right? I mean, he couldn't be a more influential figure in our in Canadian politics. But like you said, right at the top, Jeremy, it's just like third rate Chicago school. It's like discount bin. It's gone a little off Chicago school politics. Um, and we just lap it up. Yeah, like at least the Chicago school for all the horrible things it did had some like intellectual heft to it. <laughs> this is literally just an American from Illinois, right? From um, I, I don't know how far Ottawa, Illinois is from Chicago, but I would imagine not that far. And <laughs> yeah, it's just like total like cosplaying as this like right wing intellectual. And yeah, I mean, that's why he's my choice for, like, the dumbest intellectual. That was Eric Wickman, Marino Greco, and Jeremy Appel. They are big, shiny takes. Subscribe to them wherever you get your podcasts. Andre Goulet is the man behind Harbinger. He's their executive director, and I called him up to learn more about what the network is building. It's grown really fast. They've got a big slate of really cool podcasts, but as you've heard on this episode, Canadian media is still dominated by the right wing. We don't have enough voices of the left in the mainstream. Like it's kind of non-existent. And having this organization of people who are smart, funny, subversive, 
influential, having a space where they can work together, I think is really important for starting to shift some of the narrative back towards left thinking. So that's what drives me to do this work and to help build this community. I'm curious about kind of like the alternative media space in Canada in general. And in preparation for chatting with you, I was just looking up podcast charts. And I think I do not recommend doing that because it can be a little depressing. I looked at news commentary, which is kind of like the domain in which Darts and Letters and most of the Harbinger shows might feature in. And of the top 10, six of them are what I would describe as far right, not just conservative voices, but like the Breitbarts, the Rebels, the Daily Wires, Ruben, and like 13 of the top 20. Like... Far-right American shows are the top shows in the Canadian news commentary on Apple Podcasts, and that's pretty depressing. <laughs> yeah, and looking at the rest of the numbers here, Jesse Brown's Canada Land is consistently at number yeah. one every week. So Canada Land has been extremely successful at carving out this space and then just staying there, right? Like we do all know people who listen to Canada Land and enjoy it. And I myself listen to it for like every episode for the first three and a half years or something. So yeah, Canada Land takes up a lot of the oxygen, partly because I think Jesse's a talented communicator. I frequently disagree with the things he has to say, but he's a very talented communicator and the show is slick and professional and, and definitely creates a space for kind of progressive voices, but it's not an ideological show. It's definitely not a show of the left. So why is there not space for left shows? Well, I think it's because podcasting is kind of like the Wild West, right? Like it's difficult to carve out space and, and be seen. And that's one of the reasons that Harbinger exists so that we can like, you know, be stronger together. I'll point out too that in the top 100, we have three shows right now. One is a French show that's uh, produced in collaboration with our friends at Ricochet French, uh, Faisez-vous de Cherche, which is a narrative podcast about far-right QAnon conspiracy theories in Quebec. And then the Alberta Advantage comes in at uh, like number 70-something. Left Turn Canada, Christo Avelis and Andy Burkowski's Left Turn Canada is at 68. And in other weeks, sometimes we'll have like six or seven shows in the top 10. So I have seen over the last year, we're slowly making this space for progressive, like genuinely left conversations on the top 100 charts. But there's a long way to go when like, you know, 40 to 50% of the shows are not even right wing, but like far right wing. It's not that slow. You said you've been around for what, like a year now. And mm -hmm. it has been exciting to see the growth of Harbinger and, and these shows going up higher and higher on the podcast charts. I think I have a certain kind of admiration for the level of organization of like right wing ideologues. And they've got years on us and they've built kind of networks like the Daily Wire and Turning Point USA and Prager U and, and, you know, all of the above that have sort of cultivated these voices that have been really successful over time. And one of the things is, you know, you, you just any kind of cursory glance of these organizations, massive, like right-wing billionaire philanthropist money or venture money, usually just like donations. You know, people like Dan and Ferris Wilkes and Bernard Marcus from Home Depot. He's funded Turning Point USA. So we are, I think, punching above our weight given the amount of resources. It's just a little overwhelming to see what it is they're working with in terms of their, their money. 
there's a good opportunity to point out that we have zero Home Depot dollars uh, <laughs> behind Harbinger. Harbinger's a registered nonprofit, like in Canada, and we exist solely on the support of people who care about the work we're doing. We're also extremely horizontal. So I'm like not anybody's boss. I'm just like the guy that is the cheerleader and tries to make the connections. All of the shows on the network seek their own support through, you know, Patreons and stuff like that. So it's this kind of like weird way that socialists try to like make space in media. And I kind of like to think about it in terms of the like um, slow media movement. So think mm. about slow food and how you're you know, supposed to just sort of like be very organic about how you approach eating. And it's like with this, it's kind of the same thing. Like I don't feel the need for us to be successful in six months or we're going to have to fold. This is a long-term project where I fully desire us to be going for a very long time without just like, you know, some point of no return where we're like, we have to stop. We don't have enough money. So yeah, it's definitely a passion project, I think, for basically everyone involved. If people want to support the work we do, they could definitely go find out more at harbingermedianetwork.com. Yeah. And I think the other thing that sort of distinguishes shows on Harbinger versus some of the other shows that that are successful, I mean, they're not really chasing clicks. I mean, they're shows that are, you know, funny and entertaining, a lot of them, but like they're not doing the same kind of thing. Like look at someone like Jimmy Dore or something where it's just like, you know, I'm going to do some outrageous thing, you know, cultivate controversy for the sake of it. It's like gin up attention in the, in the YouTube algorithm, um, which leads to kind of like a bizarre ideological incoherence and just, you know, whatever media squabble it is that give, in a given week that you're chasing. But with Harbinger, I mean, you get the sense that these are people with a shared political and ideological project, which sort of like keeps you true in a certain sense. It stops you from degenerating into like media and Twitter brain, which I find really, really refreshing about the shows on the network. They're thoughtful, right? And they're, they're, they're slower sometimes in a good way, like you were saying. I think that's accurate. And I think it might just go to show that the left has better taste. Like we're funnier. Um, <laughs> we're more perceptive. And like we get subversion in a way that the right can't. So like the Big Shiny Takes gang, which you have on this same episode, these guys are so funny. Yeah. They're they wonderful. They're charming. Like, it's just a good vibe. Desmond Cole and Shama Rungwala, their new show Replay, joined the network along with Darts and Letters in the expansion a few weeks ago. And they're doing, like, critique of racial capitalism and pop culture. And so it's, like, it's incredibly subversive. Listen to their first episode where you'll hear the best conversation you've ever heard talking about the initial Jurassic Park from, like, 20-some years ago. Mm. And it's wonderful. And then we have like Anti-Girl Boss Socialist Club, which is uh, basically like a response to every person who ever told you that they want to be a girl boss or every guy who said, I, I want you to put a collar on me and walk me around like a girl boss. Like the, these <laughs> this sorts of thinking. There's a lot of funny, insightful, subversive, countercultural element to the gang that we have. And it's a lot cooler than The Daily Wire or Blaze. Sorry, mm. I don't want to be controversial, but yeah. that's how I feel. What's it like building that kind of community? I mean, for people that have engaged in leftist activism, you know, including myself, like it can be, we all know this, extremely factional, extremely contentious, often purist, and difficult to sustain yourself 
in left media movement building, I mean, how has it been to sort of like bring people together from all across the country too? One of the fundamental reasons it works is that there's a bit of a buy-in when, when shows join and the buy-in is like, we're going to be friends. Like this is a friendly community. Um, just like any sort of competition is, is good competition. There's nothing really like aggressive towards each other. We've only, we've had barely like anything in the last year of, of people fighting with each other. And it's something that I think happens a little bit naturally, partly because of the horizontal approach that we have to the community, where you can have people who are big names like Paris, like Rousseau, uh, like Nora Loretto, who are able to bring these shows on and be part of like a loose organization. And then again, like it's not a competitive atmosphere. People are friendly. And one thing that I am hoping to do with you in the future is have you on to my show, Harbinger Society Presents. And I use Harbinger Society Presents as a space to host panels with talent or, or people from the community, and then also to highlight other left spaces like Briar Patch Magazine, a, a 50-year-old institution out of Saskatchewan. Um, I've done panels with... Uh, some of the people from Press Progress and and anyway, so like this, like just as a way of having a space where we can have conversations sort of within this Harbinger community. So if people want to check out my work, it's uh, Harbinger Society Presents, available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, sorry for all these promotional things. Did you know this was going to happen when you got me on here? <laughs> what the I hell? Fi- I figured, I mean, you are a big booster of your shows, which is something I very much appreciate as being part of the network. So if I were to be frustrated with this, I'd call myself, I'd be a hypocrite. So I can't. (laughs) That was Andre Goulet, the executive director of the Harbinger Media Network. You can support their work at harbingermedianetwork.com forward slash join. Look for it in our show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Epilonio. Show notes by David Mosscrop. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souten. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber, and our graphic designs were done by Dakota Coop. I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. You can send us feedback by emailing the show. The address is darts at citedmedia.ca, or you can tweet us at Darts and Letters. Darts and Letters is supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday. Mm-hmm.